Brick Moon Fiction presents Opposite Number by Eric Del Carlo Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle No ghosts in the machines anymore. The machines themselves were specters now. The cloud. The free-floating data eternally in motion. Gone were the days of mainframes, of nuts-and-bolt machinery, of the hacker intelligentsia, the cult of the computer cowboy. Cyberspace was now without the glamour. Such observations were reflected in Kern Dunham's stolid face, the curveless stripe of her mouth, the deep watchful set of her powder-blue eyes. Those eyes were currently aimed at Bravo Constant, who had arrived at the briefing room ahead of her, and who, naturally, was already putting on his show. He'd commandeered a plush leather chair, put his feet up on the long, lacquered table, and laced his fingers behind his head. Since last Kern had seen any visual evidence of the man's existence, he'd shaved his head down to a platinum fuzz. His left earlobe was punctured with all sorts of glittery wear, little whispering, whirring devices which made it seem he was plugged into everything. His clothes were equally ridiculous, a postmodern retro chic that no one could pull off. He looked like a combo of hobo and astronaut. In other words, he was dressed like a cowboy, what cowboys used to be, when they were as much personality as function. Bravo Constant was one of the old legends, which annoyed Kern Dunham to no end, since she was his contemporary. His eyes, bright with mischief, eventually tracked her as she entered the Megacore briefing room. They didn't speak. They waited. Bravo's boot heel. Boots. He was wearing boots. Knocked steadily on the tabletop. Each had had a heyday. Each had seen that time pass. Hacking was a different game now. It didn't require a flesh-and-blood being working magic through a computer deck. Sentient algorithms did the work, fought the battles, committed espionage and counter-espionage. Kern had been living the past few years in a coastal megacity, mostly giving lectures, mostly filling time. She had once been an independent operator, when a person of talent could still garner a reputation and living that way. Later, as the cyberscape had started to inexorably change, she had signed on with one of the worldwide conglomes. Bravo had enlisted with that conglom's chief rival. But this briefing room was neutral ground. It was the church where the two adversarial assassins could meet, with the blessings of both their corporate governments. A third and final person entered the room, with its soulless comforts and corporate decor. The briefing began. The briefing ended. Kern Dunham and Bravo Constant had their mission, should they agree to it. The only hope of success, of course, was if the two one-time rivals worked together. It was asking fire and water to cooperate in subduing a third element altogether. It was impossible. Kern agreed to it. Nothing showed on her carefully kept features. No body language expressed itself. Her dress was as conservative and reserved as the rest of her. It fell then to Bravo. Was he content to stay adrift, a faded image of what he had been? Or did he want a last shot at the game? His boot heel knocked the table. Then it stopped. Execs from the two competing conglomerates were being killed. It had taken some time for this fact to emerge. Killed. The active verb. Motion toward. For a while the deaths had been attributable to mishaps and misfortunes. People, after all, did die untimely deaths. These deaths, though, were perceived to be, after much analysis, timely, in that they had been planned, premeditated, 
and carried out with a light-fingered sophistication. The executive personnel were not the most obvious targets. Were there some agency interested in crippling, or at least seriously inconveniencing, either global conglom? The assassinations of more prominent and powerful members of the corporate governments would have served better to damage operations. Megacores were effectively nations. They had territory, citizenries, even armies. To sow confusion, even chaos, one would be tempted to pick off the most conspicuous office holders. But there was something subtler afoot here. The death toll accumulated slowly. It was widespread. It resisted pattern analysis. In many cases, these weren't even department heads who met their ultimate fates. Yet the deceased personnel, many in research and development units, turned out to be linchpins in their departments. They were the secret geniuses, the quiet wizards. They were quirky, given to strange fits of insight and invention. R&D divisions since time immemorial had relied on these brilliant misfits. Certainly modern conglomerates, engaged in worldwide commerce of epic scale, needed the constant input of such creatures. A human element yet remained in the cyber age. The right goods had to be manufactured, Behind them had to be the right ideas, the cultural flashpoints which even the algorithms couldn't successfully conjure. The two megacores, rivals for decades, were still the two most powerful entities to be found on Earth. They were each mightier than any empire yet born. They could have annihilated Rome, driven Genghis's hordes into the sea, and beaten down the Nazis with a counter-propaganda campaign. But it had only now become clear each corporation was, as of this moment, dying. The only way to stop the swifter fall of these kingdoms was to staunch the bleeding. The assassin or assassins had to be found and neutralized. Enter Kern Dunham and Bravo Constant, phantoms of a wilder era, here reimagined as corporate knights errant, opposites in temperament, in style, both given now the same purpose. Bravo wanted to book a table at the poshest restaurant. Kern was content to punch a food ration from a street vend unit. They compromised on a mall kiosk with artificial palm fronds fluttering beneath the ventilation. The city was spun gold in the nighttime. The pseudo-ninonic texture was part retro, part municipal campaign to keep the uglier quarters in pleasing dimness. Almost anything looked good if you illuminated only the highlights, the outlines, the mind filled in the rest, and didn't, usually, immediately go to images of slums and industrial no-man's lands. They had traveled halfway across the globe, in a suborbital, their joint sponsors footing the bill. They'd come to the far-flung megacity for two reasons, to see what expenses they could get away with, and to discover, right off, whether they could stand to be in one another's presence for any length of time. The journey, otherwise, had no meaning. Kern's chopsticks clicked quietly in a plastic bowl. Bravo ate with thumb and index finger and wiped sauce from his chin with the back of his other hand. Well, said one. Well, said the other. They could speak without really talking. That was an indicator of their compatibility more than anything. The mall was tiled in various geometric shapes of metaplastic. Feet in common transparent footwear tip-tapped endlessly. Consumers went in and out of the bio-aug boutiques, the sensewear accessories, the skin-change clinics, a hundred other glittery outlets spread through the two levels. So, said Kern. So, said Bravo. 
and it might have gone on like that into a vaudeville loop, which prompted Kern to finally say, We have to make this thing work. The Gloms were right to hire us for this job. We can use the old ways, dig up former contacts, reactivate the bygone punk network. Think any of them are alive? Some. Most, maybe. People don't generally go out in a blaze of glory. Bravo shook his head, but not to negate anything specific, it seemed to Kern. We're supposed to bring back the past. Kern's shrug was a mere centimeter's worth of lifted shoulder. If you like. He yawned flamboyantly. I don't particularly like, but yeah, it's a plan. I've been thinking along the same lines. It annoys me some that we agree. Kern silently concurred. This man had for so long been her reverse, her antithesis. To say that they were enemies was to overstate the dynamic and not do it justice. At the same time, their relationship was molecular, galactic, mythological. They were oppositely charged particles, existing in a realm beyond the mere physical. Kern ate the last of her curried rice and set the disposable chopsticks neatly alongside the bowl. We know where we have to go then, she said. Bravo looked resigned. He nodded. Back to Wiretown. Back to Wiretown. Once they had both espoused this concept. Wiretown was more a state of mind than a place. Which was bullshit. Street sophistry. Wiretown had been a physical, tactile, tangible portion of a decaying megacity. A particular precinct had been given over to nefarious activities of a certain nature. Here the cowboys had strutted or skulked, depending on disposition. Here the hackers had hacked. Narcs were plentiful. Deals got made, got broken, got mended. Nightshade commerce. Accounts plundered electronically. Corporate espionage. Coyotes moving human units through to the port. Sly types trading vials of augmented cerebrospinal fluid. A flea market, a Chinatown, a frontier outpost. Wiretown. Because there were no wires, it was all happening in the air crackling around you, beneath a yellow polluted sky and amidst the dancing shadows. And yes, it was still there. Still a palpable quarter of urban squalor. Faintly quaint now, somehow. Kern walked the streets. The skies were clearer, with patches of natural color. Efforts at municipal refurbishment were evident. Many of the hole-in-the-wall businesses had changed hands, probably multiple times, but the giant black obelisks that dominated the area still stood, relics of dystopian architecture. Kern took all the changes at face value. Time had passed. She should accept that. But the biggest change took the shape of absence. The air, the very breath of Wiretown, no longer vibrated and pulsated with that undercurrent of dark techno-magic. There wasn't a cowboy around every corner and in every cubbyhole huddled over a computer deck. The hustle wasn't being played out at its non-stop frenetic drug-fueled velocity. Yet here lay the streets, and Kern Dunham made her dutiful rounds. And soon enough she met, here and there, a familiar face, installed in a changed but still familiar venue. And thus she began to reestablish her presence. In other sectors, employing his own flair, Bravo Constant was doing the same thing. The ne'er-do-wells and lowlifes who had been their associates in the old days remembered them to a person. Two legendary cowboys weren't so easily forgotten, even if they approached their work in completely different ways. Kern was the ascetic, 
as cold as the data she used to handle. Bravo was the Harlequin, larger than any life imaginable. Separately that day, they rekindled their reputations with Wiretown's remaining cast of characters. As night fell, they met up. The rendezvous had once been a dealer club. You could buy whole organs just outside the restrooms, caked in ever-ice and still throbbing. Or dark augs, the kind they used to give to frontline suicide soldiers. Now the club was a bistro. Kern, hungry, ordered a meal. Bravo drank a syrupy red liquid out of a sake ceramic. There was piped-in balalaika music. They compared notes. The mission was to discover who was killing corporate personnel. It would have been easier, of course, if the assassin used poison, a garrote, a gun. Instead, the victims were electrocuted in their homes in freak but plausible accidents. They got run down by off-grid cargo haulers or managed to be in the wrong place at the right time for a crane to snap off the face of a building and come tumbling to the street. There were still thieves in Wiretown, still people who made their livings in data violence. Megacores were on the other side of the war. Could it be a grudge? Someone who'd been crossed by a conglom in retaliation for a job gone bad? Once upon a time, Wiretown had been rife with casualties. Corporate operatives liked nothing better than to inflict physical damage on the ghosts who bedeviled their machines. Eye for an eye, street-level payback. But it didn't feel right. Kern was drawing on instincts that had lain dormant for some years. Bravo, on the other side of the table, appeared to be doing the same. His unnecessarily handsome face was clouded. What do you think's going on? she asked, as neutrally as possible. He took his time tipping back his glass, letting the red goo uncurl onto his tongue. She wanted to bat the cup out of his hand. You first, he said, finally. What do you think? The old enmity was still there. In the old days, they'd stepped on each other's toes often. They'd fought a zero-sum game for prestige and reputation. Kern had used to dream of him running afoul of a jacked-up smoker one night, or getting a bad dose of whatever narc, she couldn't remember it now, had been his preference. None of this rancor showed on her tidily set features. She was sure of this. She said, I think we're chasing a ghost. A real one. His lips curved into a sensual sneer, but the cast of his eyes was measured, almost flat. How do we catch a ghost? He sounded as if he already had an answer of his own. But she did, too. We don't. We let it catch us. They rented a room. It was in a building that had once been a warren for cowboys. Fanciful figures with comp decks had been installed in virtually every cramped room, each of which was wired for maximum data access. There the plunderers had performed their feats, made their assaults. The place had been as lively as a nest full of hatchlings. It was lively no more. But that didn't matter. In the dim small room, the two erstwhile cowboys set up custom decks. They set their eyewear to link with their machines for lightning-best response time. They settled on the gritty metaplastic floor in the pseudo-lotus pose. Curran set her desk in series with Bravo's. Their gear now spoke, one to the other. This made her uneasy, but it was necessary. For just a moment, while he fitted micro-thread leads to his earlobe gear, she gave him a wordless glower. It was a look of bitterness, of malice. Had he looked up and seen, it would have been more expression than he'd witnessed on her face in a long, long time. They performed a final check. 
Then it was time to throw the guillotine switch. Into cyberspace they went. The abstracts weren't what they once had been. The interface these days was more sterile, less textural. It wasn't so receptive to a subtle touch. They set out to investigate the living quarters system of an R&D tech named Cecily Keita. She had died in an overload accident. A freak set of circumstances had to have occurred in order to allow the misfortune, but those circumstances, upon initial investigation, appeared to have happened. The official case had been closed. Now here were these two unauthorized, unverifiable entities probing the same area. Kern navigated the proxies accounting for the home system. Schematics popped up. She probed the data. Information quivered a moment, like a bowl of neon jelly, then began to pour. In the phantasmagoric ether, she sensed Bravo on the move, hovering, watching. She heard his warning when it came. Then he was already in motion, going against the third electronic entity now on the scene. Kern kept pulling the information, seeing glimpses of glimpses of what data had been covered up, the true story of what had happened to Cecily Keita in her home. Even this probably wouldn't have been enough to deduce means and certainly not identity, but she had spooked the killer, who had been watching the crime scene in the kaleidoscopic shadows and who was now moving to annihilate her likely through a backflash current which would fry her cerebral structure back into the little hacker's room in the mostly empty building in Wiretown. But Bravo Constant leapt in, in a very Bravo Constant sort of way. Too big, too flashy, taking too much time, more concerned with form than content. He deflected the bolt of current meant for Kern and sent a jolt of customized juice into the heart of the approaching beast. Its proxy an antiseptic geometrical shape that managed nonetheless to appear rather sinister. Kern spun and flanked the beast. She threw up walls and fields, containment. Bravo would deliver the, hopefully, final blows. Unless this thing was smarter than they'd guessed. It was, and it wasn't. The beast was strong, with an arsenal at hand, but it couldn't think in the language of chaos, not the way Bravo could, and not if Kern were to be wholly honest, as she could as well. A cowboy had to be, on some level, unpredictable. Bravo toyed with him a second too long. Kern wanted to scream, to let her shriek of frustration echo across the cyberscape. But then her colleague did the right thing. He set the beast ablaze with a flamethrower dismantling program. Kern was stunned by its power. It was military-grade, but calibrated with finesse. It lit up the beast, which writhed in a frenzy that was almost animalistic. Kern kept it penned in, choked it with her walls, and let Bravo's conflagration burn it to ashes. When they came out, she had spilled onto her back, head turned to one side. Her deck was still in her lap, canted at a strange angle. Both her eyelids were twitching, and she cut the link to her smart eye contacts. She looked over at Bravo, in a similar cut-puppet-strings pose. He let out a faint groan, the sound plucked a memory, one she had been careful not to dwell on for some time. Dwelling did her no good. It was the memory of a mistake, but one she couldn't entirely, truthfully regret making. A small room, like this, a night thick with industrially wrought humidity, her skin alive, his skin alive, heat lightning making monochromatic eroticism of the space. How they'd gotten into the room didn't matter. They were simply there, all a tangle, so vivid, 
so vibrant. The rivalry forgotten, or else the vim of that competition transferred tonight into the vigor of connectivity, of penetration, of impalement, of shattering ecstasy. A night like no other. They had known their bodies, each the other, but it had been even more than that. She had seen his true manner, his stoicism, his caution, even his bashfulness. And he had seen her with her mask stripped, with all the raw vibrancy of her true nature exposed. She had pounced on him like a jungle cat, and he had trembled as prey would tremble. Their true selves, and everything else was cowboy lies. He sat up slowly, and met her eyes, and looked away. They met again on neutral ground, after the debriefing and their payoffs. Each had earned a small fortune for protecting the great megacores from an assassin's touch. Think they know it'll just happen again? Bravo asked. They stood on a bridge over a ribbon of midnight water. The city was neither hers nor his. They could travel at will now. They have all our intel. They will figure it out, or they won't. It was how she'd meant to finish, but he had said it, and it was, well, not as annoying as it should have been, perhaps. Sentient algorithms. They were out there, in the electronic ether, webbed into so many systems, into the fabric of everything. It simply stood to reason that one of these artificial intelligences would want to eliminate humans, or curtail them, or at the very least control them. Bringing down the conglomes was a way to start. Maybe the next program run amok would go about it with more cunning, more success. Her hands were on the rail. She kept them there because they were trembling, slightly. Below, the water gurgled. The bridge was empty, and the two of them stood very near each other, without actually touching. Finally, she drew a breath. Urgency stirred in her, in the fiery depths of her being where her true self dwelled. She said, I was wondering if you'd like to... And she let it hang there, waiting for him to complete the sentence. Eric Del Carlo has been compulsively, convulsively, and propulsively writing fiction for the vast majority of his lifetime. His successes include appearances in such world-renowned science fiction publications as Analog, Asimov's, and Clark's World. The anthologies he's appeared in are beginning to crowd his bookshelf. His novels range from sword and sorcery like War Torn, written with Robert Asprin, to urban fantasy like The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, to his young adult title, The Vampire Years. He's written podcasts for Earbud Theater, had his novels released as Russian editions, written scads of erotica, and seen his fiction chosen for a year's best anthology. He writes because he doesn't know how to stop, and because he's determined to carve out every last worthy word he can while he still walks this world. Also, he's eager to know you, so contact him via Facebook. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.